Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Will with ScheduleFly, and y'all, I'm really excited today to have Johnny Adler on the phone. <clears throat> Johnny's in Burlington, Vermont, and he and his brother Benji uh, co-own the Skinny Pan- excuse me, the Skinny Pancake, which has seven locations. Uh, Chubby Muffin, which is their commissary kitchen. Uh, they have a catering business. They have a festival tour, and they still have their original cart, which started all of this um, back in. Uh, June of 2003, if my research is correct, uh, you guys started with a cart and no experience uh, in Burlington. Is that right, Johnny? That's right. Still have no experience. (laughs) Uh, Trial and error. And uh, yeah, man, absolutely. So uh, y'all have done an amazing job over the last 15 years of building a really great business uh, and a great brand that's very well-known and well-respected. Uh, and you have, uh, I really love a lot of the stuff as I was reading about y'all. Um, uh, and I want to talk to you about some of this stuff today. The idea of the double bottom line, uh, I know you're participants in 1% for the planet. Um, you have a, uh, very significant amount of your food is purchased, uh, locally. Um, and you guys are really have a mission to, um, I mean, you guys, you guys have big, big goals and big objectives with what you're trying to do, uh, with changing the way that, that we, um, consider our food and where it's from and um and you really are advocating for something that's important and it's important to you so um congrats on on what y'all have done and and i'd like to just kind of dive back in and tell me a little bit about just i mean when you guys got started what was the what was the plan or was there even a plan <laughs> really longer than the in the short term sure well well first thank you so much for the kind words uh certainly uh it, it doesn't it doesn't quite feel like such a march to glory sometimes we're in it but i really appreciate your uh um your kind words um so uh we definitely did not start off with a plan um i was a couple of years out of college uh working uh with another business a uh, software company um and my brother was still in college and um you know it just uh it at the time uh, our original business partner was actually my girlfriend um and we, uh, if she didn't like her job at a coffee shop, there wasn't at the time as much professional opportunity in the Burlington area as there is now. Really cool place now with a lot of a lot more professional opportunity. And at the time, I said, "Well, if you don't like your coffee shop job, then let's uh, let's not complain about it, and let's uh, let's open a, a, a cart on Church Street." I lived in France a couple of years earlier. I, you know, just uh, was an amateur cook and enjoyed, um, you know, all kinds of French cuisine. And so, uh, you know, we. Uh, we put the cart out, out there, uh, you know, built um, uh, out of some MDL I bought at the lumber store and um, the flooring from my parents' uh, flooded kitchen. Uh, their kitchen had flooded and there was all this beautiful hardwood. So we used that um, to for the countertop. And um, then we needed a trailer to get it on and off. And we had a sailboat that had junked and we had a old sailboat trailer and i made a flatbed out of that the flatbed was like four feet off the ground when it should have been you know four inches off the ground so it did tip over at the end of the season but we made it the whole season without that happening (laughs) um so you know it it opened kind of like that i mean um you know our first um you know uh our first batch of batter it was before you know you could google something on your phone and i googled crepe batter um at home on my desktop computer and called them and they took out the bowl at the cart and actually made the batter. Um, so we really didn't open, um, you know, with, with any kind of plan at all, um, uh, to give you a sense of it. Um, uh, but that was 2003 and, you know, in our early twenties when you could, you could do stuff like that. 
How long were y'all doing that and, and to until you started to realize, hey, this is cool and this is fun and maybe we could do something here? Sure. So that was the summer of 2003. Um, and the next couple of summers, um, uh, actually, we had a couple of good friends, uh, you know, run it and, um, you know, signed a piece of paper basically saying we won't sue the other brothers no matter what. The deal was they bought us a new flatbed trailer um, after we tipped the old one over and they could just have everything. Um, so they ran it for a couple of summers and, you know, we had fun kind of collaborating with them, but they were doing the work. Um, and those are a couple of really pretty visionary people. Um, one of them went on to found 350.org, um, which, uh, you know, is an environmental organization, uh, you know, uh, oriented around, um, uh, you know, keeping 350 parts per, uh, you know, per million in, in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide that are lower. So, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, this is these are the kinds of people that we were we were working with and a lot of our kind of value shared values with um and so it kind of just ran as a fly by the seat of your pants cart for a couple more years and then um in 2006 uh benji uh came back on the scene he'd been doing uh relief work for nine months in uh new orleans after hurricane katrina um and uh, he bought our veggie oil bus sueno that is still our festival tour bus driving around uh he converted it from you know regular diesel to veggie oil uh you know and drove it up here um and uh, you know that kind of uh happened to kick off the 2006 summer and all of a sudden in 2006 we had you know those those guys who had um, kind of run it for a couple of years with our energy back in it um and uh you know we joined the vermont fresh network we actually worked out of the kitchen of nectars which is a um you know a bar here in burlington they weren't using it so we were powered by a commercial kitchen um and um you know all of a sudden we realized like wow we're kind of buying a lot of food here and um you know we're, we can buy instead of buying this food at costco we can um you know work on buying this food locally and it was kind of our personal ethic in terms of how we wanted to eat um, and then we gradually realized as we got bigger and we went to more festivals in that summer of 2006 that, um, you know, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of potential in, um, you know, your buying power when you are starting to grow and buy serious volumes of food. Um, and we started to realize that if we had a facility we could use, you know, year round, not just in the summer, that we could contract and buy, you know, basil and, um, you know, from a farmer before they've even grown it, that uh, they could grow it, they could get it to us. Um, and, uh, you know, we could process that into, you know, our pesto. And so we just started to realize, um, you know, as we grew that, our power to buy things responsibly um, really could make a difference. Um, and, um, you know, then kind of got hit with some news at the end of 2006, which is Nectar's wanted their kitchen back. Um, and, um, my, you know, my brother and I did a bunch of soul searching, trying to figure out whether, a, you know, find another kitchen or try to sell the, you know, the um, tour and everything we set up. And turns out you can't sell a uh restaurant concept without a kitchen very well um and uh and so we ended up looking around for kitchens and we realized that once you're paying for having a kitchen you might as well have a restaurant and uh once you're paying to look at a low-end restaurant you might as well try to find an up-and-coming place and uh you know come in as an anchor tenant and so we developed a great relationship with our current landlord down at our flagship location in burlington um who um you know helped contribute to fitting the space up and um you know we opened what was 
was then a third the size of what it is now as our first location. Um, and, uh, you know, opened right into the summer on the waterfront. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a booming success and, uh, you know, super, super exhausting with like a lot to learn for sure from some, you know, we'd never, we, we, we did hire one person with experience to kind of set up the team. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I would say that to answer your question, you asked really like, you know, 2006 into 2007 is when we realized, um, you know, that, uh, the way you buy your food can make a really big difference and that the bigger we could make what we were doing and still source our food that way, the more of a statement that we could make that it's the better way to source your food. Mm. Um, and so um, it has obviously grown a lot since then. Um, but it was really like those early years that, um, you know, made us realize, hey, everybody's doing this a certain way, and it's not the way we think it should be done. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, let me ask you this. Um, when you developed that relationship with your landlord early on, uh, in, you know, as an anchor tenant, talk about that. I mean, talk about young guys who haven't, you know, even had a, you know, haven't had a long track record. Um, how were you able to build that relationship? And because clearly you've, you've, you know, you've done what you expected to do and here you are this many years later and you've grown the space. But tell me about building that relationship early on and what did it take to convince that landlord that, that you guys could pull it off? Sure. Well, uh, her name is Melinda Moulton. She's uh, for sure notorious and well-known in town. Um, she is like a fiery liberal. Um, she's like a really powerful independent woman, um, you know, who kind of came of age in the 70s when it certainly wasn't um, you know, uh, it was harder to be that kind of person then, um, you know, uh, in, in the world of gender equality and everything else, like she really, um, I think in some ways, I think she was like a pioneer and, um, you know, we, we lucked into the, the space in some ways. I remember saying, look, I think, you know, we, we can't afford to be on church street where it's, you know, 35 bucks a square foot and, you know, um, really expensive, um, real estate, but, um, you know, what's an up and coming place that needs, um, you know, that needs an anchor tenant. And, um, our friend who was, a um, you know, who, who was and still is like a commercial real estate broker around town said, well, Melinda Moulton has space in, uh, you know, her new building on the waterfront. And it's just this big, beautiful building that was, you know, just done being constructed. And anyone who lived in town kind of saw it. And it was big and cavernous and totally empty. And I, we literally left the table and went down and we were peering in the windows, um, you know, that moment. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that the, the first thing I would say is like we, we did our research on the person who owned it before we talked to them. Uh, we were pretty young and scared, honestly, and um, and wanted to make sure we made a good impression. Um, and so I think when we did walk in to talk to her, we knew who we were talking to, um, you know, and that helped. And then honestly, I would say that, like, um, you know, we told her what we wanted to do. She loved the idea. You know, we lucked out and that she wanted uh, like a cultural hub in the space, in the place we wanted to be in. So, you know, we were right place, right time, and that's what she wanted, and that's what we, um, you know, were, were looking to do and what we had to offer. Um, you know, and then I think, you know, we've had a lot of, um, you know, we've had a lot of interaction with her over the years since. We've certainly disagreed with her a lot of times. Um, 
And, um, you know, I, I mean, I think she's reasonable. I don't always get, um, you know, uh, sort of our way with it. But I think um, in the case of this landlord, we've always led with making clear that our motivations are in the right place and our motivations are, um, you know, to give um, sort of to accomplish what she, she wants, even if we disagree on the way. So, um, you know, the exact details of how it came about, I mean, I remember she paid to put in the hood vent system, um, you know, and that took a big chunk out of the, uh, you know, original, um, you know, fit up cost. And I, I remember thinking at the time that, um, you know, I felt like it was, it was generous. Um, and having worked with a lot of other landlords since, um, you know, I think I've come to the conclusion, having done it both ways, that, um, there's a, you know, if, if there's two different kinds of spaces, there's spaces that are already existing kitchens and there's spaces that aren't. And, um, you know, if a landlord has a space that is not, has no pre-existing kitchen infrastructure, um, and they're not willing to put one penny into helping you do that, um, it's a little bit of a red flag. Red flag, um, yeah. And I have done that i've worked with a landlord who begrudgingly gave us ten thousand dollars toward a million dollar build and it didn't turn out to be a good landlord tenant relationship um and we won't do it again so i guess the real the real thing is if you want a landlord who you feel like is going to understand um you know what it means to have a restaurant which is a hard use of your space there's a lot of people in and out there's a lot going on in there um and needs a lot to go in. And once you have a restaurant, you're likely to have more, um, you know, you either, you know, the landlord is either willing to play ball or they're not. And if they're not willing to put anything toward it, I think it's a red flag. Um, so that's another way to look at it. No, it's really great advice. I spoke to a gentleman yesterday out in California that touched on that topic and was saying that I think you nailed it, man. If, if uh, they're not, it, you know, people are a lot of times are anxious and to get started and, they have a space they fall in love with and they want to make it work. But if that person's not looking at it that way, they're not really a partner. And if they're not a partner, um, then it's a very different relationship than just, you know, pure landlord tenant versus somebody that says, let's, let's do this together as a team, as a partnership that'll be here for 25 years or whatever. And, you know, you invest, uh, into some of the infrastructure on the front end and, uh, to help us. And then we'll turn around and build a you know business that's going to be here and be successful and draw people into your space for, many years to come right um, yeah restaurants are a hard use on your space and if you don't you know if you're not as a landlord prepared for that then when the conflicts come up that are you know relate to that um it's harder to uh you know harder harder to deal with it for sure um and since we're on the topic of it um uh you know i think that like that lease is when you're excited is the most dangerous time you know and mm. paying really clear attention to uh you know how long you can be in there when your renewal periods are negotiating in and out clause um earlier in it um you know if let's say you're in a 10-year lease negotiate yourself in and out um even if you, you're like there's no way i'm taking this just get it in there because you never know um and really paying attention to those the way that the um you know the increases come in because you know you look at a two and a half percent increase a year you don't think it's that much but you add it up over 25 years of lease and it's millions of dollars so um you know uh that's uh, you know it's, it's definitely worth paying a lot of attention to that compounds pretty fast doesn't it <laughs> that yeah percent um well, tell me this. Uh, I want to changing gears a little bit. How do you, how do you define local when you talk about local food? Like, 
Sure. You know, that is a, that is, that is a really good question. Um, and you know, organic is easy, right? It's either USDA certified organic or it's not. And there's all kinds of almost organic stuff that, you know, you might use, but there is no definition of local that's universally accepted. Um, I would say the closest to the universally accepted definition of local is the hundred mile radius. Um, but, um, you know, even by our standards, that's a little problematic because, you know, that, I mean, I do believe that if something's within the 100 mile radius is local, but that could have, that has things in Quebec in another country local for us, um, while uh, Southern Vermont is not. Um, mm. So, um, you know, so, so as, you know, as simple as, you know, the radius um, doesn't, it's, it's, it's a nice like starting point for, you know, somebody who's, who is trying to, you know, buy local and think local is just a, a first kind of litmus test, but it, it's not as simple as that. Um, uh, so we break it out into local raw and value added products. Um, local raw product is the easy part. That's the basil being grown at the farm right here within Burlington city limits that, um, you know, gets, uh, you know, grown and cut and brought up here and prepped into our pesto in in uh one year it actually was all done by the same person who still happened to work at that farm and then also worked for us um but uh you know so that's your local raw product is, is pretty obvious local value added product um would be something like coffee that is purchased in guatemala or africa or any other um you know central american or you know foreign continent um brought here raw and then roasted here and prepared here and then sold to us um so local value added product um kind of really is a way of acknowledging uh trade isn't bad and um you know globalism isn't bad either and all of us like coffee all of us like spices um but um you know uh you know there is a big difference between um Folgers coffee you know and coffee that's brought in raw here roasted on site by professionals who are artisans that are paid you know in vermont you know the employers paying vermont taxes you know and it's a good career with good practice you know good good uh benefits then that coffee is you know specially prepared and brought here so that's like an example of you know um value added product and um you know so we have our own personal definition where basically king arthur flower is the you know this incredible local company that does a lot of things to support um you know great uh, you know they have great work practices they contribute um in all sorts of ways to um uh the local economy um but their product their flower like we can't be grown locally here they have some local products like you know that buckwheat that's grown here but their product is not, essentially not local. It's brought here, processed and improved and sold. And so sort of anything, you know, we see that as local value added and anything that's at least that local and up, we consider to be local. Um, and we separate our tracking of local raw and local value added. Um, so that's a long answer for how we, um, you know, how we define it. Um, and the short answer is we think this should be a transparent and open conversation. Like we're not trying to, um, you know, greenwash or, um, you know, call things local that aren't really. Um, we're trying to have this conversation with everybody. Um, and it's fine if other people have a little bit of a definition that's different than us about uh, what local is. Well, I love that. That's a uh, it's a great answer. And it's an interesting answer. And it's an educational answer. 
Um, and I think it's why I asked the question because I'm I'm trying to learn, and quite frankly, that's <clears throat> the most thoughtful and informed answer I think I've heard from anybody about you know how do you define local and a very authentic answer and a very you know as you said transparent answer. And I think that's what people are really looking for, right? Is I mean you're probably doing a great job of educating your guests on what that means to you all and what the difference is between you know local locally sourced or locally value added and um it, it makes a lot of sense and it resonates really well so i love that yeah i mean we're, we're, we're trying to and we're trying to have that conversation and i think we found that the best way to do it is to get you know get out there in the community not just wait for people to come into our restaurants but to go to fairs and festivals to bring this kind of food there you know to talk about it with people certainly when you're in a restaurant you see a food chip map you know where our food comes from um i think the story that kind of helps define like how we do this and why um there's a restaurant that's no longer around um called uh three tomatoes i think at the time it was sweet tomatoes and you know they bought everything right off the cisco truck and um but then they ran a, uh, you know, quarter page ad in the local paper saying, you know, Misty Knoll chicken special. Misty Knoll is the local organic, um, you know, chicken. And these guys didn't buy one local thing other than this chicken that they then featured in their chicken special saying we love local food. And it was right next to our, you know, advertisement, uh, you know, that, you know, obviously we thought we were a lot more authentic. And so um, it kind of put a challenge just saying, OK, if anyone can go buy one product and then run an ad for it um you know how can we bring this conversation up in a way where um you know not only it's not that we just wanted to defend against being you know doing what they were doing we wanted people to realize that there's a really big difference between you know buying one local product and advertising it or saying we use local products quote whenever possible which is a really uh really common thing you see on menus um you know versus like making this the central point of what you're trying to do Mm -hmm. and in our case not trying to own that and say that nobody else can do it but quite the opposite saying anyone can do this you just have to like commit to uh this being important to you um and this is the better way and the fresher way and if done um you know we have our our food margins are respectable and um you know if done the right way you can serve this kind of food and you can run a profitable restaurant with good food margins at the same time love it man love it what um tell me about this what is the double bottom line what does that mean uh, well, there's double bottom line, there's triple bottom line. There's different kind of ways to um, uh, to, to to look at it. Um, the double bottom line is would be, um, you know, people and profits. Um, but people, purpose, and profits are really the, um, you know, uh, the way that we would look at that. Um, but in in general, like there's no there's no profit without purpose, and there's no purpose without profit. Right. So, um, you know, when you hear, when you'll hear a triple bottom line, it might be people, purpose and profit, double bottom line, I would put as um, purpose and profit. And um, the idea behind that um, really is um, that like success is empowering and our buying power is um, what makes us able to have a purpose. So, you know, if we want to run a nonprofit, um, first of all, it's not a restaurant. Second of all, it's harder to make a difference in the world because you're not as, 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 as financially empowered. Um, so there's nothing inherently wrong with making a profit um, and, you know, extending out beyond um, the skinny pancake, um, you know, profitable capitalistic 
um, uh, you know, entities need to be on board with, um, you know, having clear, you know, philanthropic purposes, um, you know, to solve the problems of the world. And, you know, you can't just say, okay, the nonprofits are going to try to do everything that, um, uh, you know, that will solve the world's problems while the for-profits are going to go out there and just try to make as much money as possible. Um, you know, these two things have to happen at the same time. And indeed, um, you know, they can, um, Yvonne Chouinard, who is, I think a model for us, he's, um, oh, yeah. the founder of Patagonia. Yeah. Um, you know, and he made, he's made this comment, which is, um, you know, every time I did the right thing for the environment, I also made money off of it. Yeah. Um, and that's not automatic on the one hand, on the other hand, I would say that, you know, because people know that we're trying to do this right, we have investors and we have um, interest from community loan funds and, um, you know, what's called the slow money uh, network, which is, um, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, socially minded investors trying to make a difference in the world. You know, we have all kinds of opportunities that come to us that wouldn't because people can see that we're authentically trying to do, um, you know, the right thing. Um, and, um, you know, then just jumping over to when you said double um, versus triple um, and coming down to people, um, that's especially, I think, acute in the, in the restaurant industry, which is notorious for having really tough HR practices, you know, that the whole hell's kitchen, um, you know, almost reality of the way that it is. You know, our, our employee handbook says this is not a hell's kitchen. And, um, you know, the excuse that this is just how it happens in the restaurant industry that does not fly here. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, it's, this is like a really hard job, but there's a lot of ways to make better money. We all know that, um, no matter where you are in or out of the chain for how hard you work. Um, you know, there's easier ways to do it. Um, and you gotta be in this to some degree for the love of the game. Um, but you also, um, you know, I think on, on our end, like especially now when the economy is strong, unemployment's low, um, it's really hard to get talent. Um, you know, you have to take care of your people. And so at the skinny, um, you know, in tight times included, we have 401k, we have, um, you know, we offer health insurance and we did it before we actually had to. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, our, our staff has been here at least three years. Uh, or managers for a year or more, uh, we pay for half of their farm share so that they can actually get local vegetables all summer long too, um, you know, not just prepare them for other people. So um, mm. I think like it, that's like a really hard one, the tighter it gets, um, you know, just like local food is um, where, you know, you're going through and, you know, no matter how big a restaurant, I mean, I don't, I haven't gotten any bigger than I am now, but from the sizes we've been at, um, you know, at all sizes, we've gone through really, really tight times. And um, it's a low margin business and not much has to go wrong to make that the case, um, regardless of how much revenue we have. And, um, you know, the tighter it is, the harder it is to keep a commitment to, to your people. But the more important it is because they're the ones who are going to pull the doubles to get you through it, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You guys, uh, I just really love hearing the way you articulate the way you run the business and the philosophies you have. And you've clearly, you and Benji have put a lot of time and thought into this over the years. I'm sure it's, it's, uh, you know, your perspective has changed some and grown, but I mean, that's a, gosh, what a cool philosophy, man. If everybody ran their, ran their business that way and not, not just hospitality business, but all business. By the way, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of Yvonne as well. Um, just love the way he approaches the business and, um, Gosh, it's what a great success story. I mean, that that business is just massively successful, but um, you know, 
certainly built with a, a very clear purpose. And people latch on to that, don't they? I mean, when you have somebody that when you're clear about what you're trying to do and what your intentions are and what your purpose is, and it's something bigger than than just profit, um, people enjoy that and they appreciate that and they want to be a part of that. And then whether that's through patronizing your business or coming in and eating your, your food or if it's, you know, buying Patagonia pullovers or whatever the case may be, people, many people that people that are paying attention uh, often will latch on to those brands and become very, very loyal, passionate uh, customers for those brands. Yeah, one quick anecdote on that from them and the way that we followed it. And I guess I would say on this, it's like, you know, it, you kind of can do, if you have somebody that you idolize, like you can do little mini things that are that are like what they do and uh, and have cool success. So um, on, on the Black Friday uh, of 2016, um, so that year, Black Friday, obviously Trump had just won the election. Um, and, um, you know, there was a lot of like environmental concern coming off of that, wherever your politics are. Um, and um, uh, Patagonia did a, on Black Friday, they did 100% of revenue went to um, certain environmental causes. Yeah. And they typically would do, I think they typically did $2 million on Black Friday. And they did like 11 or something. I'm, you know, I'm, those numbers yeah. aren't exact, but it was yeah. multiples. Like they had by far the biggest sales they ever. And then they donated all the revenue. Um, and we sort of realized, all right, this is, you know, Black Friday. It's um, Patagonia. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was kind of like a, a combination where they, you know, they really leveraged their influence in an impressive way. And we took that. Um, and actually, the night that Trump um, went in, was inaugurated, we did this thing called Oath of Action, working with 1% to the planet. We're big members of 1%. Um, and it's an incredible organization. Um, they, you know, basically, it's, you know, it sounds little. You donate 1% of your revenue to, um, you know, environmental nonprofits, but anybody who uh, is in this industry knows that 1% of your revenue is not little with the margins that we operate on. And so yeah. it's a, the organization motivates you. You're either going to write a big check at the end of the year um, with money you maybe don't have, um, or you're going to engage with the community and do fundraisers and like get out there and raise that money. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, by being a member of it, you actually activate and it, it's a way of, um, you know, it's a, it's a trigger, it's a commitment to get out there and follow, um, you know, and, and basically, you know, try to do, do our part in the world. We use a lot of energy and we buy a lot of food and, um, you know, we want to do what we can to, uh, um, you know, do it the right way. So working with them, um, we said, okay, if Patagonia can do this, what can we do? And we worked with them for, with this thing called the Oath of Action, um, where basically, um, you know, people took, you know, Trump took an oath of office and people took an environmental oath of action that day or any oath of action they wanted. And, um, you know, just from having worked with 1% on that inauguration day, like, um, you know, 15,000 different oaths of action were taken all over the world. Um, and, um, uh, you know, in, in, in China and all kinds of other places, which isn't just because we did it. It's because we, you know, teamed up with them and then they were able to go out to their entire network and do it. So, um, you know, it shows that if you like kind of if you do see something like that, that that inspires you and you look with the connections that you have, um, sometimes something can get a lot bigger than you expect it to be. Man, that's really powerful. dude. That's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, look, so. um you've built just you and your brother have built a really just an impressive business and an impressive brand and the way you run it is is just so admirable and um i 
I also want to respect your time, man, because I know you're busy. <laughs> and, uh, and I asked you for about a half an hour, so I'm, I'm going to let you roll. I literally could. There's like a thousand other questions I want to ask well, you. Well, I talk a lot. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. But it's so good. So I may maybe next year I'll follow up with you and do another one or something. There's other things I want to ask you about. But also I do want to respect your time. And I, I really appreciate it. I mean, anybody listening to this is going to be both educated and inspired in a lot of ways. So um, and as am I. So Benji, just, I mean, Johnny, thank you so much. Uh, tell Benji, um, thank you as well. Um, we are stoked to serve y'all. We're proud to serve businesses like yours. Appreciate you taking the time to do this very much, my man. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much to you too. Appreciate, uh, appreciate the kind words. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, uh, listen, have a good one and, uh, we'll talk again soon. Y'all get after it. All right. Thanks. All right. Take, take care. care. All right. Bye. Bye.